Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well, the last episode was controversial. Episode 207 on racism and police violence. Uh, we have since released an annotated transcript to that episode with links to relevant videos and articles and data. I've seen some response, some of it quite effusive in praise, and some of it outraged, which of course I expected. Many people also contacted me privately to convey their gratitude and full support, all the while making it clear that they can't take such a position publicly. And this is definitely a sign of the times that concerns me. I'm talking about people who, in any sane society, should be able to have the courage of their convictions. And some people thought it ironic, even hypocritical, for me to trumpet the value of conversation in a solo podcast. But the truth is, that podcast was just my way of starting my side of a public conversation. I'm sure I will have proper conversations on this topic in future episodes, and I welcome recommendations about who I should speak with. But given what I perceive to be the desperate state of public irrationality at the moment, I wanted to say something at full length that was relatively well-formulated and comprehensive, rather than just lurch into a conversation with someone and just see what came of it. Anyways, I make clear in the podcast that wasn't the final word on anything, apart from my sense that intellectual honesty has to be the basis for any progress we make here. And to that end, I will keep listening and reading and having conversations. Another thing to clarify here, there, there are now two formats to the podcast. And actually, there's three types of podcasts that fall into two categories. The first is the regular podcast, which is generally an exploration of a single topic. And that is usually with a guest, very often based on a book he or she has written. But sometimes it's a solo effort, like my last podcast was. And the aim in this standard format is to say something of more than topical interest. These are podcasts that I hope if you listen to them two years from now or even further in the future, they would still be worth listening to. And if you're seeing these episodes online, you'll see that they have a unique photo or piece of artwork associated with them, and they're titled in some way to reflect their theme. And the second format, which I've piloted with Paul Bloom and Caitlin Flanagan, but which I've also used for other guests recently, David Frum, Jonathan Haidt, Andrew Yang, Yuval Noah Harari. This format aims to be more topical. It's not that we won't say anything of lasting interest, but the goal is certainly to cover some events that are in the news and to not linger too long on any one topic. And these episodes are titled just with the date of the broadcast. So, I hope that clarifies any confusion out there. Once again, if you want to get full episodes of the podcast, you need an account at samharris.org. And as there are no sponsors for the show, the fact that people subscribe is what allows me to do this. So, thank you all for your support. Okay, and now for today's podcast. Today I'm speaking with Toby Ord, 
Toby is a philosopher at Oxford University, working on the big picture questions that face humanity. He is focused on the ethics of global poverty. He is one of the young founders of the effective altruism movement. I previously had his colleague, Will McCaskill, on the podcast. And he created the online society, Giving What We Can, which has gotten its members to pledge over $1.5 billion to the most effective charities. And his current research is on the risks that threaten human extinction or the permanent collapse of civilization, otherwise known as existential risk. And Toby has advised the World Health Organization, the World Bank, the World Economic Forum, the U.S. National Intelligence Council, and the U.K. Prime Minister's Office. And most important, Toby is the author of the new book, The Precipice, Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity. And it is an excellent book, which we cover only in part in this conversation. But uh, we cover a lot. We talk about the long-term future of humanity, the moral biases that we all suffer with respect to distance in space and time, the psychology of effective altruism, feeling good versus doing good, possible blind spots in consequentialism, natural versus human-caused risk, the risk of asteroid impacts, nuclear war, pandemics, the potentially cosmic significance of human survival, the difference between bad things and the absence of good things, population ethics, Derek Parfit, Derek Parfit was Toby's thesis advisor, the asymmetry between happiness and suffering, climate change, and other topics. Needless to say, this is a conversation that stands a very good chance of being relevant for many years to come, because our capacity to destroy ourselves is only increasing. So, without further delay, I bring you Toby Ord. I am here with Toby Ord. Toby, thanks for joining me. Great to be here. So, uh, I'm very happy we finally got together. This has been a long time coming, and I knew I wanted to speak with you even before your book came out, but your book has provided the perfect occasion. Uh, the book is The Precipice, Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity, and it couldn't be better timed in some way, except one of my concerns in this conversation is that people are have, without even thinking about it in these terms, something like existential risk fatigue, given that we're dealing with this global pandemic, which is not in and of itself an existential risk, as we'll talk about. But I've had a bunch of podcasts on topics related to this, like you know, nuclear war and other you know, big picture concerns that I felt have been sort of mistimed in the current moment. And so I, I delayed this conversation. I, I feel like people have, have acclimated to, if not the new normal, a long emergency of some kind. And this now strikes me as, as the perfect time to be having this conversation because, as I'm sure we'll talk about, this really seems like a, a stress test and a dress rehearsal for you know, much bigger problems that, that may yet come. And so it's, it's really an opportunity for us to learn the right lessons from a bad but ultimately manageable situation. And uh, so perhaps to start here, you can just introduce your, yourself, and uh, I will have introduced you properly before, but how do you describe your work as a philosopher and, and what you have focused on up until this moment and, and 
And perhaps, how do you see the current context in which to think about these ideas? Yeah, I, I'm a philosopher at Oxford University, uh, where I specialize in ethics. Although I didn't always do philosophy, I, I used to be in science, specializing in computer science and artificial intelligence. But I was really interested in uh, questions, big, big picture questions, which is not that fashionable in ethics, but questions about really the what are the biggest issues facing humanity and what should we do about them? Thinking about humanity over the, the really long run and really global issues. So I found that within philosophy is a place where one can ask these kinds of questions. And uh, I, I did quite a bit of work on global poverty in the past as one of the really big pressing issues facing humanity. And then I've moved in more recently to really be specializing in existential risk, which is the study of, of risks of human extinction or other irrevocable losses of the future. For example, if there was some kind of collapse of civilization that was so great and so deep that we could never recover, that would be an existential catastrophe. Anything in which the entire potential of humanity would be lost. And I'm interested in that because I'm, I'm very hopeful about the potential of humanity. I think we have potentially millions of generations ahead of us and a very bright future, but we need to, we need to make sure we make it to that point. Mm. Yeah, and, and I assume you do view the current circumstance as, in some sense, despite the obvious pain it's causing us and the death and suffering and, and economic problems that will endure for some time, on some level, this is a this is almost as benign a serious pandemic as we might have experienced, and in that sense, it really does seem like an opportunity to at least get our heads around one form of existential risk. Yeah, I, I see this as a warning shot, the type of thing that has the potential to to wake us up to some even greater risks. If we look at it in the historical perspective. It was, you know, about a hundred years ago. The nineteen eighteen flu was uh, looks like it was substantially worse than this. Uh, that was an extremely bad global pandemic, which killed. We, we don't really know how many, but it, probably a few percent. You know, something like three percent of all the people in the world, which is which is significantly in excess of where we are at the moment. And if we go further back in the Middle Ages, uh, the, the Black Death killed somewhere between about a quarter and a half of all people in Europe and significant numbers of people in Asia and the Middle East, uh, which may have been about a tenth of all the people in the world. So sometimes we hear that the current situation is unprecedented, but I think it's actually the reverse. What we'd thought was that since it was 100 years since a really major global pandemic, we'd thought that that was all in the past and we were entering an unprecedented era of health security. But actually, you know, it's, it's not. We, we were actually still vulnerable to these things. So I think it's really the other way around. So b before we jump into existential risk, I just want to talk about your background a little bit, because I, I know from your book that Derek Parfit was your thesis advisor, and he, mm -hmm. he was a philosopher who I greatly admire and was actually, I, had a, I was in the middle of an email exchange with him when he died. I, I was trying to record an interview with him and really consider it a a major missed opportunity for me because mm -hmm. he, he's just he was such a had such a beautiful mind and then i know some of your other influences peter singer who's been on the podcast and and nick bostrom who's been on as well have 
you single them out as people who have influenced you in your focus, both on effective altruism and existential risk. I guess I, before we jump into each specifically, I, they strike me as related in ways that may not be entirely obvious. I mean, obviously they're related in the sense that in in both cases we're talking about the well-being and survival of humanity. But with effective altruism, we're talking about how best to help people who currently exist and and to mitigate suffering that isn't in any sense hypothetical. It's just that these are people, you know, specifically the you know, the poorest people on earth who we know exist and we know are are suffering the consequences of intolerable inequality or what should be intolerable inequality in our world and we can do something about it and and the effective piece in effective altruism is just how to target our resources in a way that truly helps uh, and helps as much as possible but then with existential risk we're talking rather often about people who do not yet exist and may never exist if we don't get our act together and we're also talking about various risks of bad things happening, which is to say we're talking about hypothetical suffering and death for the most part. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because these are, I mean, in some sense, very different by those measures, but they play upon the deficiencies in our, intui- in our moral intuitions in similar ways. I'm not the first person to notice that our ethics tends to degrade as a function of physical distance and over any significant time horizon, which is to say we, we feel less of an obligation to help people who are far away from us in space and in time. We, the truth is we even feel less of an obligation to prepare for our own well-being when we think about our future self if we discount our concern about our own happiness and suffering fairly extremely over a time horizon. Let's talk about the basic ethics here, and, and feel free to bring in anything you want to say about Parfit or any of these other influences, but how do you think about proximity in space and time influencing our, our moral intuition and, and you know, whether or not these things should have any moral significance? Mm-hmm. So uh, in terms of uh, physical distance, Peter Singer was a big influence on me when it comes to that. He has this brilliant paper, Famine, Affluence, and Morality, where he asks this question about, you know, if, you, if you're walking uh, on the way to work and uh, you passed a, a child drowning in a pond, you know, and in order to go in and help them, to save them, uh, you would have to ruin uh, your shoes or your suit or some aspect like this, uh, which is, you know, significant value. Say you're going to give a, a fancy lecture. And uh, most of us, you know, without really much hesitation, we would go in and do this. And in fact, we might think it's wrong for someone if they just, you know, looked at their suit and their shoes and then kind of thought, oh, actually, no, I'm not going to do that and, and walked on by. And he made this analogy to what about people in distant countries? There's some, some question about exactly how much it costs to save a life in poor countries. And uh, it, it may actually cost more than, a, more than a fairly nice suit, maybe about $1,000 US. But he, he kind of asked this question about what's really different in those cases, and could the physical distance really matter? Could the fact that they're, they're a stranger matter? And he, the, he came up with a whole lot of ways of thinking about these differences and showing that none of them really could matter. So yeah, he, he's uh, you know, really helped challenge a lot of people, including me, about that. 
Now, effective altruism is more general than just thinking about global poverty. It could apply to existential risk as well. And in fact, uh, many effective altruists do think in those terms. Mm-hmm. But it, it's about this idea of really trying in our lives to be aware of how much good we could do with our activities, such as donations or through our careers, and really trying to think seriously about the scale of it. So I got really interested in this when I looked at, at a, a study called uh, Disease Control Priorities in Developing Countries 2, a uh, catchy name, DCP2, and it had this table in it where they'd looked at over 100 different ways of helping people in poor countries with their health. And if you looked at the, the amount that you could help in terms of health, like in terms of healthy life years for a given amount of money, say $1,000, there was this really striking difference where the, the best interventions were about 10,000 times more effective than the, the least good ones. And the, the, uh, in fact, they're about 100 times better than the middle intervention. It was uh, a log normal distribution. Mm. So this was something where I did a bit of technical work on this and, and found a whole lot of interesting stats like that. It obeyed almost exactly the 80-20 rule, where if you funded all of these, these ways of helping people in poor countries, 80% of the impact would happen from the, the 20% most effective interventions. And also, if you had a choice between two interventions at random, and uh, on average, the more effective one would be 100 times as effective as the less effective one. So this is something where it really woke me up to this fact that where you give can be actually even more important than whether you give. Mm. So if you're giving to something that, say, for a certain amount of money is enough to save a life, there may well be somewhere you could give that would save 100 lives. And that choice, how you make it, 99 people's lives you know, depend upon you making that right. Whereas the difference between you giving to the, the middle charity or nothing is only one person's life. So maybe it could be even more important kind of where you give than if you give in some sense, although obviously it's, it's, they're both important. And so it was really thinking about that that made me realize this. And uh, within moral philosophy, there's a view utilitarianism or consequentialism. There's a kind of family of views that take doing good really seriously. And they're not just focused on not doing things that are wrong, but also on how much can you help? But it made me realize that the people who support other ethical views, they should still be interested in doing much more good with the resources that they're devoting to helping others. And so, you know, I, I set up an organization called Giving What We Can, trying to encourage people to give more effectively and to give more as well. So it was based around a pledge to give at least 10% of your income to the most effective places that we know of, initially around global poverty and global health. Although we've broadened that out to, to include anything, for example, it could be animal charities or any way of helping others as much as you can. And in fact, we, we've uh, now got more than 4,000 people have made that pledge. They've given more than $100 million mm. to the most effective charities they know of and have pledged more than a billion dollars. So it's actually a pretty big thing uh, in terms of the, the number of people who've embraced this message and are really trying to, uh, to really make their charitable giving count. Yeah, well, your your colleague, Will McCaskill, who put us together, was on the podcast a while back, and and that conversation was very influential on my thinking here, because one thing you both have done in your thinking about effective altruism is you have uncoupled sentimentality from 
a more hard-headed concern about just what actually works and what saves the most lives. So much of philanthropy in its messaging and its tacit assumptions and in the, the experience of people giving or deciding whether or not to give is predicated on the importance of feeling good about giving and finding psychological reward there. And I'm convinced that's still important, and I think we should figure out ways to amplify that. But at the end of the day, we need to correct for our failures to be maximally rewarded by the most important contributions we can make. This is just a kind of a domain-wide human failing that the worst things that can happen are not the things we find most appalling, and the best things we can do are not the things we find most rewarding. And surveying this landscape of moral error, we need to find ways to correct for the reliable failures of our intuitions. And so in, in talking to Will, it occurred to me that one way to do this is just to automate it. I mean, you just, and I've now spoken about this several times on the podcast, but it's, it was such an instructive example for me because at the time, Will was saying that the most effective, or certainly one of the most effective ways of, of mitigating human death was to uh, give money to the Against Malaria Foundation. Mm -hmm. At the time, that was number one on the, I think, on the GiveWell site, might still be. And I recognized that in myself that. That was a cause which, you know, struck me as deeply unsexy, right? It's not that it's, I don't care about it. I, I do care about it when you give me the details. But, you know, buying insecticide-treated bed nets and giving them out, it's neither the problem nor the intervention that really tugs at my heartstrings. And it's just obvious that shouldn't be the priority if, in fact, this is the way to save a life at the the lowest dollar cost. And so, and so, yeah, so I just decided to automate my giving to that, that one charity, knowing that it was, it was vulnerable to my waking up in a month, <laughs> not being able to care much about malaria. And so, I mean, that, that's the kind of thing that, that you and, and Will and, and, your, and the movement you guys have inspired has made really um, salient and actionable for people. So, I mean, that alone is a huge contribution. And, and so thank you for doing that work. Oh, uh, no problem. That, that's, that's exactly why we did it. I should say it's also the question of how much you give is another thing that to try to automate, as you put it. Yeah. So I used to, like when I was a, a grad student, I, I used to, because I was aware of these, these numbers and like how, how much further my money could go abroad. It basically, around about, I could do around about 1,000 or 10,000 times as much good with my money by giving it to the most effective places abroad than I could by spending it on myself. I, I worked this out. And that meant that, you know, I, I became very pained, you know, when I was at the supermarket trying to work out whether to buy the absolute cheapest cereal or the second cheapest cereal. And uh, that, that's not really a good pathway to go down hmm. because you're, you're not that productive if you're spending all your time stressing about that. So I, I took an approach instead of, of working out how much to give and committing to give a large amount of my money over the rest of my life. And then just living within my reduced means. And then you just basically just pretend that your salary's, you know, or, or that your salary's a bit lower. You know, maybe pretend that you took a, uh, a job in the charitable sector or something, you know, with a, with a smaller salary in order to do more good. Or pretend uh, that you're being taxed a bit more because, you know, it would be good if 
some of our money was taken to to help people who are much less fortunate than ourselves, and then, and then just live within that reduced means. Yeah, or or you could pretend that you're working one day a week or one day out of every ten for the benefit of of others. Yeah, that, that's that's another way to think about it. Yeah, and, and it turned out that I made a I mean the the pledge it's based around is to give at least ten percent of your income to where it can help the most or where you think it can help the most. And we're not too prescriptive about that. But ultimately, I've given a bit over a quarter of uh, everything I've earned so far. But the way I, I think about it is uh, to think about uh, actually what Peter Singer suggested, which is to set a uh, amount of spending money on yourself and then to give everything above it. And I set that to an amount which is about equal actually to the median income in the UK at the time. And a lot of journalists, yeah, would say, well, how on earth could you live on less than uh, you know, 18,000 pounds per year? And yeah, it's kind of weird. I was <laughs> trying to point out that actually half of the population of the UK do that. So uh, pe- people lose a bit of touch on these things. And uh, that makes it, you know, ma- makes it clear that it's as doable uh, if you think about it in those terms. Hmm. So, so, but it is useful to use techniques like these to make it easier. So you're not using all your willpower to keep giving. Instead, you make a kind of lasting commitment. That's, that's the point of making a long-term commitment on this, uh, is to, to tie yourself to the mast and make it a bit you know, a bit less onerous to be reevaluating this all the time. And we found that, that that worked quite well. Initially, people said, well, no one's going to do this. No one's going to make this commitment. Forgetting, of course, that there have been traditions of giving 10% of your income for a long time. But it's something where, you know, we found actually that, that there are a lot of people who would. And as I said, more than $100 million have been given and more than a billion dollars pledged because it really adds up. And it's one of these things where, if someone kind of shakes a can at you on the street corner, it's not worth spending a lot of your time trying to work out whether to give and also whether this is a, the best cause you could be giving to because there's such a small amount at stake. But if you're making a choice to give something like a tenth of your income over the rest of your life, you know, that, that's, that's something like more than $100,000. And you know, it's really, really worth quite a few evenings of reflection about where to give it and uh, whether you're going to do it and mm. make such a commitment. But if you do, you know, there's, there's a lot at stake. So we found that, that thinking of it in these bigger chunks, you know, really zooming out on your charitable giving over your whole life and setting yourself in a certain direction on that really showed and, and made it worthwhile to do it right. Yeah. And one of the ways you cut through sentimentality here is around the question of what people should be doing with their time if they want to benefit the most number of people. And, it, and it's not that everyone should be rushing into the charity sector and working for directly for a cause they find valuable. You argue that if you have a talent to make immense wealth some other way, well, then that is almost certainly the better use of your time. And then you just give more of those resources to the charities that you want to support. Yeah. So my colleague, uh, Will McCaskill, really, I mean, we'd talked about this right from the start, but he really took that a step further when he set up this, this organization, 80,000 Hours, uh, with Ben Todd. Yeah. And they were, they were going deep on this and, uh, and really thinking, okay, we've, we've got a theory for what to do with your charitable giving. How can you make that more effective and really actually help more recipients or help those recipients by a larger amount? And 80,000 Hours was about this huge amount of time over your whole career and really trying to spend, you know, if you're going to spend 80,000 hours doing your job, 
it, it kind of makes it obvious that it could be worth spending, you know, a hundred hours or more thinking seriously about where you're going to devote that time. And one of the things they considered was this idea of earning to give, of taking a deliberately high paid job so that you could donate a lot more. And in some cases, you could do a lot of good with that, particularly if you're someone who's, who's well suited to such a job and also kind of emotionally resilient. <laughs> there are a lot of people who want to do a lot of good in the world, but really wouldn't last if they went into finance or something and you know, everyone else, all of their friends were, were always off at the golf course or something. And, and this person was scrimping and saving and couldn't socialize with any of their colleagues and, and so on and saw them living to excess. So it could be pretty difficult. But if you're someone who, uh, who can deal with that or can, can, can take a pretty sensible approach, maybe give half of what you earn in finance and still live a very good life by any normal standards. And some people have taken that up, but that wasn't the only message. We're also really interested in, in jobs in areas where you could do a lot of good. For example, working on a charitable foundation in order to help direct their endowment to the most effective things mm. to help others. Also, we found that, that people, we were very interested in a few different areas. There were kind of a few clusters of work, which were on global health and global poverty. That cluster was really to do with the fact that uh, the poorest people in the world live on about a hundredth of the median uh, US wage. So, and it means, therefore, because there's diminishing returns on, on our income, that our money can do roughly a hundred times more good to help those people than it can here. And if we, if we do kind of leveraged things, such as funding the very most important healthcare that they can't buy themselves, then, you know, we can get even maybe a thousand times more effectiveness for people abroad than we can for ourselves. Mm. So that's, that's one way to do good. Another way that there's a, there's a cluster around is animal welfare, noting that there's a market failure there where animals, you know, don't have a natural constituency, they can't vote. It wouldn't be surprising if there were massive amounts of pain and suffering, which were being neglected by, by the general capitalist system that we're in. And indeed, when we look at it, you know, that there are. So that was another approach, although it's, it, there's a, there's a, you have to go out on a limb a little bit about how on earth would you understand animal welfare compared to human welfare in order to, to think about that. But you can see why it could be a really neglected area. And then there's a, there's a kind of branch of people really interested in the long-term future of humanity and noting that only a tiny fraction of all the people who have, who have ever lived are alive at the moment. And it's probably an even tinier fraction when you consider all the people who ever will live after us. That, you know, this is just one century. We've had 2,000 centuries of humanity so far. We could have thousands of centuries more after us. If there are ways that we can do something now to have a lasting impact over that whole time, then perhaps that's another location where we can do really outsized amounts of good with our lives. So we've often been thinking about those, those three different areas. Are there trade-offs here with respect to the feeling good versus being effective calculus? Because if you take a, a strictly consequentialist framing of this, well, then it seems like, well, you should just cut through the, the feeling or, the, you know, or the, the perceived reward and salience of various ways of helping and just help the most people. But the situation does strike me somewhat as morally analogous to the, the failure of consequentialism to parse why it makes sense for us to have a preferential love for 
our family and, and you know, in particular, our, our kids. It's often mm-hmm. posed as a riddle. You know, how, how is it that you can shower more attention and resources and love and concern on your child than you could on two strangers? Or, and obviously the, the equation gets even more unbalanced if you talk about 100 strangers. And that has traditionally struck many people as just a, a failure of consequentialism. Either we're not really consequentialists, or we can't be, or we shouldn't be. But I've always seen that as just a, on some level, a failure to get as fine-grained as we might about the consequences. I mean, obviously, there's a consequence to, if you just think it through, there's a consequence to having a society or being the sort of social primate who could, when faced with a choice to help their child or two strangers, would just automatically default to the what seems to be the consequentialist arithmetic of, oh, of course, I, I'm going to care more about two strangers than my own child. I mean, what, what do we mean by love and the norm of being a good parent if that is actually the emotional response, right, that we think is normative? And so there, it's always struck me that there could be something optimal, and it may only be one possible optima, but at least it's a possible one, to have everyone more focused on the people who are near and dear to them and kind of reach some collective equilibrium together where the human emotion of love is conserved in that preferential way. And yet, in extreme cases, or even just at, at the level of which we decide on, on the uses of public funds and rules of fairness and justice that govern society, we recognize that those need to be impartial, which is to say, when I go into a hospital with my, mm-hmm. my injured daughter, I don't expect the hospital to give us preferential treatment just because she's my daughter. And in fact, I would not want a hospital that could be Mm -hmm. fully corrupted by just answering to the person who shouted the loudest or gave the biggest tip at the door or whatever it was. I can argue for the norm of fairness in a society even where I love my daughter more than I love someone else's daughter. It's a long way of saying that that seems to me to be somewhat analogous, or at least potentially so, to this condition of looking to do good in the world and, and noticing that there are causes, the helping of which gives a, a much stronger feeling of compassion and solidarity and keeps people more engaged. And I think we do want to leverage that, obviously not at the expense of being ineffective, but I'm just wondering if there's, if there's anything to navigate here or if you just think it really is straightforward, we just have to just strip off the, any notion of kind of the romanticism and reward around helping and just run the numbers and figure out exactly how to prioritize our resources. I guess I would say, here's three levels at which to think about this. So one approach would be to say, yeah, just look at the the raw numbers, let's say from some study on how much different ways of spending our money could help people, and then just go with what that says. A second approach would be trying to be a bit more sophisticated, to note that there might be a whole lot of people who just kind of, yeah, who aren't getting enough back from, they're not enough feedback perhaps in their lives about the giving and the effect it's having on people, such that they, if they were to try to do the first one, that they couldn't really sustain it, which could be a really big deal because I'm hoping that, that people can make a commitment and keep it to give, you know, for the next 30 years. And if they get burnt out after a couple of years and stop, you've lost almost all the value that they could have produced. 
especially as they're probably going to earn more money later in their life and be able to give even more. It could be that you lose 99% of the benefit if they give up after the first couple of years. Mm. So you at least want to go this, this one step further and have some idea or some sensitivity to the idea that if it's more appealing or it can, you know, it can be more sustained, then that matters. And I'm thinking in that sense, quite instrumentally, in that, that it's just trying to take account of the, the, the fallibility of, of the humans who are the givers. It's not about flattering them or kind of like stroking their ego or something like that. But it's the way I think of it, a lot of people, when they think about giving in particular, have a focus that's very focused on the giver. Um, I think of it as giver-centric or donor-centric kind of understanding of it. For example, norms against being public about your giving, I think are very donor-centric. They're about, well, that would be gauche to be public about it. Right. But from my perspective, I'm very focused on the recipients. And it seems to me that all of this focus on the donor is misplaced. If the recipients would benefit more if the donors were public about it, such that they help to encourage their friends to be giving, for example, by talking about some of these causes, ideally in a, in a non-annoying way, then that could be good for the recipients. And similarly, if there are aspects where, you know, maybe if the donor somehow could follow through on a very difficult, dry program of giving, they would be able to give more. If in fact, many donors fail to achieve that, or they get burnt out, then that's bad for the recipients. So this, this approach is still kind of recipient focused. Or you could go a step further than that and build it into the, the structure of what it means to be, to be good at giving and to, to say, you know, fundamentally, for example, people in your community, it, or it matters more to give to people who are close to you or something like that. I wouldn't want to go that, that extra step, although I understand that, that that is where the kind of intuitive position perhaps is. And you do run into troubles if you try to, to stop at step two. <laughs> you run into some of these challenges you're mentioning about how do you justify treating your children better than other people. So I don't think that this is all resolved. But I also want to say that the idea of effective altruism, yeah, really is to be broader than, than just a consequentialist or utilitarian approach. The people who are non-consequentialists often believe that there are side constraints on action. So there are things that we shouldn't do, even if they promote the good because it would be wrong or be treating people wrongly in order to do them. For example, that you shouldn't kill someone in order to save 10 people. But since none of the ways we're talking about of giving or of the careers that we're recommending people take, none of them involve really breaking such side constraints, it seems like we should all still be interested in doing more good in that case. As philosophers, we often focus on the interesting conflicts between the different moral theories. But this is a case where I think the moral theories tend to run together and so that's, that's our focus, you know, going beyond the kind of just what would utilitarianism say or something like that. Mm. Okay, well, let's talk about the greatest downside protection we might find for ourselves and talk about existential risk, which mm -hmm. again is the topic of your new book, The Precipice, which is really a, a wonderful read. And it's great to have the complete picture pulled together between two covers. So I highly recommend that. I, we, we won't exhaust all of what you say there, but I'll flag some of what we're skipping past here. Mm -hmm. So you, you break the risks we face into the, the natural and the anthropogenic, uh, which is to say human-caused. And it might be surprising for people to learn just how you weight these respective sources of risk. To give some perspective, let's talk about just how you think about 
the ways in which the natural world might destroy us, you know, all on its own, and the ways in which we might destroy ourselves, and how you estimate the probability of of one or the other sources of risk being decisive for us in the next century. Sure. I think often when we think about existential risks, we think about things like uh, asteroid impacts. I think this is the often the first thing that, that comes to mind because it's, it's what we think destroyed the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. But, you know, note that that was 65 million years ago. Uh, hmm. So an event of that size seems to be something like a one in every 65 million years kind of event. It doesn't sound like a once a century event, or you'd have trouble explaining why it hasn't happened, you know, many, many more times. And I think people will be surprised to find out how, how recent it was that we really understood asteroids, especially people of my generation, that in 1960, that's when we conclusively discovered that meteor craters are caused by asteroids. People thought that maybe they were caused by some kind of geological phenomenon, you know, yeah. like, like volcanism. It's amazing. And, it, and then it was uh, 20 years after that, uh, 1980, uh, where evidence was discovered that the dinosaurs had, had been destroyed in this KT extinction event by an asteroid uh, about 10 kilometers across. So that's, you know, 1980, that's, uh, that's 40 years ago. Uh, and then action, you know, things, things moved very quickly from that. In particular, it was around about the same time as Carl Sagan and others were investigating models for nuclear winter. And they realized that asteroids could have a similar effect, uh, where dust from the asteroid collision would darken the sky and could, in that way, cause a mass extinction due to stopping the plants growing. So this is uh, it's very recent. And people really leapt into action. And astronomers started scanning the skies. And they've now tracked what they, they think is 95% of all asteroids one kilometer or more across. And a one kilometer asteroid is a tenth the size of the one that killed the, the dinosaurs, but it only has one thousandth of the energy and a thousandth of the mass. Hmm. So we could very likely survive that. Um, and they've found 95% of those greater than one kilometer across, including almost all of the ones which are really quite big, such as you know, five kilometers across or 10 kilometers. And so now the chance of a one kilometer or more asteroid hitting us in the next century is about one in 120,000. That's a, a kind of scientific probability from the astronomers. But it also wouldn't necessarily wipe us out, uh, even if it did hit us. And that's a probability that we really is very unknown. But overall, I, I would guess that it's about a one in a million chance that an asteroid destroys us in the next hundred years. And uh, other things that have been talked about as extinction possibilities when you look at the probabilities, they're, they're extremely low. So an example is a supernova from a nearby star. It would have to be quite a close star within about 30 light years. And it's, it's extremely unlikely. It's unlikely that, that this will happen during the, the lifespan of the Earth. And it's exceptionally unlikely it would happen in the next 100 years. I, I put the chance of existential catastrophe due to that at about one in a billion over the next 100 years. And th these, are, these are quite rough numbers, but trying to give an order of magnitude idea to the reader. And ultimately, when it comes to, to all of these natural risks, you might be worried that supernovas and gamma ray bursts and supervolcanoes and asteroids and comets, actually, it's very recent that we've discovered how these things work and that we've really realized with proper scientific basis that they could be threats to us. So there's probably more natural risks that we don't even know about that you know, we're yet to discover. 
So how, you know, how would you think about that? But there's this very comforting argument from the fossil record when you reflect upon this fact that uh, Homo sapiens has been around for 200,000 years, which is 2,000 centuries. And so if the chance of us being destroyed by natural risks, in fact, all natural risks put together was as high as, say, one in 100, we almost certainly wouldn't have made it this far. So using that kind of idea, you can actually bound the risk and show very confidently that it's lower than about one in 200 per century, and most probably below about one in 2000 per century. You also take it yeah. a little further than that by reasoning by analogy to other hominids and other mammals that would have died in similar extinction events as well. Yeah, that's, that's right. And there's, I, I give quite a number of different ways of looking at that in order to avoid any potential statistical biases that could come up. In general, it's very difficult to estimate the chance of something that would have stopped the very observation that you're making now of happening. There, there are certain kind of statistical biases that come up to do with anthropic effects. But you can avoid all of that, or most of it, by looking at related species. And you get a very similar result. They tend to last around about a million years before going extinct. And so since Homo sapiens is a species that is much more widely spread across the surface of the Earth and, and much less dependent upon a particular species for food, you know, we're, we're very robust in a lot of ways. So that's before you even get to the fact that we can use our intelligence to adapt to the threat and so forth that it's, it's very hard to see that the, uh, the chance of extinction from natural events could be you know, more than something like one in 10,000 per century is where I put it. But unfortunately, the same can't be said for the, the anthropogenic risks. Yeah, and so let's, let's jump to those. You put the likelihood that we might destroy ourselves in the next century by uh, making some colossal error or just being victim of our own malevolence at one in six rather than one in 10,000, which, which is a pretty big disparity. One thing that's interesting, especially in the present context of pandemic, you put pandemic risk mostly on the, the anthropogenic side. Maybe we should talk about that for a second. What are the anthropogenic risks you you're most concerned about, and, and, and why is it that you're thinking of, of pandemic largely in, in the terms of what we do or, or don't do? Yeah. Well, well let's, let's start with, uh, with the one that, that started it all off uh, with nuclear war, just briefly. Hmm. Uh, that I think it was in 1945, the development of uh, the atomic bomb, that we, humanity really entered this, this new era, which I call the precipice, giving the book its name. Explain that analogy, because so what's interesting here is that the anthropogenic risk, the existential risk, is really just a, the shadow side of human progress. It's only by virtue of our progress, technologically, largely, although not entirely. I mean, just the, just the mm -hmm. fact that we you know, have crowded together in cities and that we can jump on airplanes and fly all, all over the world and that we have cultures that value that. And you, you take the good side of globalization and culture sharing and, and cosmopolitanism and economic integration, you know, that is you know, perfectly designed, it would seem, to spread a, a novel virus around the world in about 15 hours. And all of the things that we've been doing right have set us up to 
destroy ourselves in a way that we absolutely couldn't have done you know, even a hundred years ago. And so this is, it's a paradox that casts a, a shadow of sorts on the work of my friend Steve Pinker, you know, who, who uh, as you probably know, has been writing these mm-hmm. immense and immensely hopeful books about human progress of late, saying that things are just getting better and better and better, and we should acknowledge that, and we should only have the decency to acknowledge that. But he's been criticized rather often for things he hasn't said. He's not saying that there's a law of history that, is insu- that ensures things are going to get better mm-hmm. and better. Uh, he's not saying we can't screw these things up. But because of his emphasis on progress, at the very least, he can be convicted of occasionally sounding tone deaf on just how the risk that we will destroy everything seems also to be increasing. I mean, just the, the power of our technology, mm-hmm. the fact that we're, we're talking about a time where high school kids can be you know, manipulating viruses you know, based on technology they could have in their bedrooms. It's just, this is, we're democratizing a rather Faustian relationship to knowledge and, and power. And uh, it's easy to see how this could go terribly wrong and wrong in ways that, again, could never have been accomplished a few generations ago. So give us the, the analogy of the precipice to frame this. Yeah. If we, if we really zoom out and try to look at all of human history and, and to see that the biggest themes that, that unfolded across this time, then I think that two of them, one is this theme of progress in, in our well-being that uh, Stephen Pinker mentions. And I think particularly in that case over the last 200 years since the Industrial Revolution, that it's some it's less clear over you know it was the second hundred thousand years of Homo sapiens better than the first hundred thousand or something. Right. I've I'm not sure, but in the last two hundred years we've certainly seen very marked progress, and I think one of the the challenges in talking about that is that we should note that while things have got a lot better, they could still be a lot better again, and we have we have much further to go. There are many more injustices and suffering remaining in the world. So we certainly want to, to acknowledge that, while at the same time we acknowledge how much better it's got. And we also uh, want to yeah, acknowledge uh, yeah, both that there are still very bad things and that we could, we could go much further. But the other major theme, I think, is this theme of increasing power. And that one, I think, has, has really gone through the, the whole of human history. And this is something where there have been about 10,000 generations of Homo sapiens. and it's only through a kind of massive intergenerational cooperation that we've been able to build this world we see around us. So from where I sit at the moment, I can see zero things, well, actually, except my own body, which were in the ancestral environment. It's something where we tend to think of this as very recent, but we forget that things like clothing is a technology that was Mm. massively useful technology that enabled us to inhabit you know, huge regions of the world, which would otherwise be uninhabitable by us. You know, you could think of it as almost like, you know, spacesuits or something like that for the earth. You know, massive improvements like this. So many things that we developed before we developed writing, which was only about 5,000 years ago. So this, this time, like 97% of human history, we don't have any record of it. And, but that doesn't mean that there weren't kind of these great developments happening that was just a these, and these sequence of innovations that have really built up everything. When I think about that and, and these, 
how we kind of stand on the shoulders of 10,000 generations of people before us. It really is humbling. And all the innovations that they passed on in this unbroken chain. And one of the the aspects of this is this increasing power over the world around us, uh, which really accelerated with the scientific revolution, where we discovered these systematic ways to create knowledge and to use it to change the world around us. And the industrial revolution, where we worked out how to harness the uh, huge energy reserves of fossil fuels and to automate a lot of labor using this. Particularly with those accelerations, there's been this massive increase in the power of humanity to change the world, you know, often exponential on, on many different measures. And that it was in the 20th century, and I think particularly with the development of the atomic bomb, that we first entered this new era where we ha- our power is so great that we have the potential to destroy ourselves. And in contrast, the wisdom of humanity has grown only falteringly, if at all over this time. I think it's been growing. Uh, And by wisdom, I mean both wisdom in individuals, but also ways of governing societies, which for all their problems are better now than they were 500 years ago. So there has been improvement in that. And there has been improvement in international relations compared to where we were, say, in the 20th century. But it's a slow progress. And so it leaves us in the situation where we have the power to destroy ourselves without the wisdom to ensure that we don't, and where the risks that we impose upon ourselves are many, many times higher than this background rate of natural risks. And in fact, if I'm, if I'm roughly right about the size of these risks, where I said one in six, a die roll, that we can't survive many more centuries with risk like that, especially as I think that you know, we should expect this power to continue to increase if we don't do anything about it. And and the chances to continue to go up of failing irrevocably. And because our whole bankroll is at stake, you know, if we fail once on this level, then that's it. So that would mean that, that this time period where these risks are so elevated can't last all that long. Either we get our act together, which is what I hope will happen, and we acknowledge these risks and we make we, we bring them down, we fight the fires of today, and we put in place the systems to ensure that the risks never get so high again. Either we, we succeed like that, or we fail forever. Uh, and either way, I think this is a, a, going to be a short period of something like a, a couple of centuries or maybe five centuries. You could think of it as analogous to a period like uh, the Renaissance or the Enlightenment or something like that. But a time where that's a really cosmic significance, ultimately, where if, if humanity does survive it, and we, you know, we live for hundreds of thousands more years, that we'll look back and that this will be what this time is known for, this period of heightened risk, and it also will be one of the most famous times in the whole of human history. Uh, and that, you know, I say in the book that, that school children will study it, and uh, it'll be given a name, and I, I think we need a name now, and that, that's why I have been calling it The Precipice. And the analogy there is to think of humanity being on this really long journey over these 2,000 centuries, you know, kind of journey through the wilderness, occasional times of hardship and also times of sudden progress and, and heady views. And that at the, in the middle of the 20th century, we found ourselves coming through a, a high mountain pass and realizing that we'd got ourselves into this very dangerous predicament. And the, the only way onwards was this narrow ledge along the edge of a cliff 
with a, a steep precipice at the side. And we're kind of, you know, inching our way along. And we've got to get through this time. And if we can, then maybe we can reach much safer and more prosperous times ahead. So that's how I see this. Yeah, there's a great opening illustration in your book that looks like a, the style of an old woodcut of, a, of that precipice, which, yeah, you know, that's an, I guess an intuition that many people share just based on, on extrapolating the pace of technological change. When you're talking about suddenly being in a world where anyone can potentially order DNA in the mail, along with the tools to combine novel sequences or just, just recapitulate the recipe for smallpox or anything else that, that is available. It's hard to see how I mean, even 500 years seems like a, an order of magnitude longer than the period here that we just crucially have to navigate without a major misstep. It just seems like the capacity for one person or, or very few people to screw things up for everyone is just doubling and doubling and doubling again within not just the lifetime of people, but within even the span of a decade. So yeah, it's, and it's given cosmic significance, as you point out, because if you accept the possibility, you know, even likelihood that we are, we are alone in the universe, I don't know how Honestly, I don't have strong intuitions about that. I mean, both the prospect of us being alone and the prospect that the universe is teeming with intelligent life that we haven't discovered yet, both of those things seem just unutterably strange. I don't know which is stranger, mm -hmm. but there, I mean, it's a bizarre scenario where either of the, the possibilities on offer seem somehow uncanny. But if it is the former case, if we're alone, then yes, what we do in a few short years matters enormously if anything in this universe matters. Indeed. I, ultimately, when thinking about this, I see a handful of different reasons to really think it's extraordinarily important what we do about this moment. It, to some extent, it's just obvious, but I think it, it can be useful to see that you could, you could understand it in terms of the badness of, of the deaths at the time. If it meant that in a catastrophe, 7 billion people were killed, that would be absolutely terrible. But it could be even much worse than that. And you, and you might think, why does it need to be worse than that? Surely that's, that's absolutely terrible already. But the reason that, that it can matter is because we're not saying that there's a 50% you know, chance of a particular event that will destroy us. The chances for some things could be lower. For example, I just mentioned uh, the chance of an asteroid or comet impact uh, is substantially lower, but still important, still really important, because it's, if it did happen, it wouldn't just be a catastrophe for our generation, but it would, it would wipe out this entire future that humanity could have had, where I think that there's every reason to think that barring such a catastrophe, humanity could live surely uh, at least a million years, which is the typical lifespan of a species. But I don't see much reason to think that we couldn't live out the entire habitable span of the Earth's, of the Earth's life, which is about 500 million or a billion years, or even substantially beyond that uh, if we leave the Earth. So, and we, the, the main challenges to things like space travel are in developing the technologies and in harnessing enough energy 
But ultimately, if we've already survived a million years, that's not going to be such an issue. You know, we will have 10,000 more centuries to develop our science and our technologies and to harness the energies. So ultimately, I, I think the future could be very long and, and very vast. Uh, so that, that's, a, I, for me, the most motivating one is everything we could lose. And that, that could be understood in, say, utilitarian terms as the well-being of all the lives that we would lose. But it could also be understood in all these other forms. And Derek Parfit talks about this very famously uh, near the end of his magnum opus, uh, Reasons and Persons, where he says that also, if, if you care about the excellences of humanity, if that's what moves you, then there's, since most of our future is ahead of us, uh, there's every reason to expect that our greatest artworks and our most just societies and our most profound discoveries uh, lie ahead of us as well. So whatever it is that, that you care about, there's reason to think that, that most of it lies in the future. But then there's also, you could think about the past. Uh, you could think about the fact that human society is necessarily this intergenerational partnership, as Burke put it, and that you know, our, our ancestors kind of built up this world for us and have got you know, 10,000 generations and then have entrusted it to us and so that we can make our own innovations and improvements and pass it down to our children. And that if, that if we fail, we would be the worst of all these generations. And we would be betraying the, the trust that they've, they placed in us. So you can think of it in terms of the, the present, the deaths, the future that would be lost, the past that would be betrayed, or in, perhaps in, also in terms of this cosmic significance. If we're the only place where there is perhaps life in the universe, or that the only place where there is intelligent life, or the only place where there are beings that are, that are influenced by moral reasoning. So the only place where there's this kind of upwards force in the universe pushing towards what is good and what is just. If, hum if humans are taken out for all the value that there is in the rest of the natural world, and I think that there is, there is a vast amount, there's, there's no other beings which are trying to make the world you know, more good and more just. If we're gone, things will just meander on their own course with the animals doing their own things. Uh, so there's a whole lot of different ways of seeing this. Uh, and, and Derek Parfit also pointed out this really useful thought experiment, I think, which is he imagined these um, three different scenarios. There's peace, there's a nuclear war in which 99% of all people die, and there's a nuclear war in which 100% of all people die. And obviously, the, the war where 100% of people die is the worst, followed by the war where 99% of people die. But he said, which of those differences is bigger? And he said that most people would say that the difference between peace and 99% of people dying is the bigger difference. But he thought that because with that last 1%, some kind of discontinuous thing happens where you lose the entire future. And that thus, that was the bigger difference. And there's this reason to be especially concerned with what are now called existential risks. Yeah, so obviously that final claim that the difference between two and three is is bigger than the difference between one and two that is going to be provocative for some people, and I think it it does expose another precipice of sorts. It's a precipice of of moral intuition here, where mm -hmm. people find it difficult to think about the moral significance of unrealized opportunity. Right, so because on some level, the, the cancellation, the mere cancellation of the human future, is a victimless crime. Right, I mean, there's no one 
who is deprived of this potential life. So people will, will instantly connect with the problem which you sketched earlier. I mean, there's kind of gradations of catastrophe here. And one moderate level of catastrophe is, is not the complete annihilation of humanity. It's just dystopian capture on some level. We, we find an equilibrium where all outcomes are essentially bad or very likely to be bad. So we're living in some kind of road warrior hellscape until the end of time because we just mm-hmm. you know destroyed everything or nearly everything so emphatically that we just couldn't successfully reboot now everyone who has seen those movies or 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 thought about the possibilities of of more or less everything going wrong will immediately connect with what's wrong with that i mean that is just if we imagine all of our descendants you know both ourselves and our descendants being pitched into a future where Life is either barely worth living or or not really worth living, but we have to we seemingly have to live it nonetheless. That is just unambiguously bad. But if you ask them to imagine what can we say in moral terms if we all die painlessly in our sleep tonight? No one survives us. That forecloses all of the potential gains that you reference, you know, the beautiful societies and the mm-hmm. and the artwork and scientific discovery and all the rest. But there are no bereaved people. There's no one to suffer the consequences of our ineptitude in the future. There's, you know, and there's no poisoned landscape for our descendants to try to sort out. So it's just a massive, albeit inadvertent, experience of uh, euthanasia. Some people would feel, well, that's certainly not the worst thing that could happen, given all the bad things that might happen. And on some level, it might not even be all that bad because, again, you're not talking about suffering. You're talking Mm -hmm. about the failure to actualize certain things that should have been possible. You're telling yourself a story about possibility, and yet there's no, the blow never lands because there's no one around to suffer the the loss of those possibilities. Perhaps you you, uh, have something to say on that front. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of challenging things going on there, and I'll I'll tease out a few of them. So one of them is a kind of difference between, let's say, bad things and the absence of good things. So similarly, we're we're often more distressed by suffering being caused to people, say people who are strangers to us, than we are by them failing to get good things in their lives. Even if to that to that person, they would say that the amount that they're losing from failing to get the good thing is of, of equal size to the amount of suffering. Uh, let's suppose that that's the case. We still feel some kind of additional intuitive thing there. Mm. There's also so that's one aspect about good good things or failure to get good things versus bad things. Another one is a there's potentially some kinds of act submissions type distinctions right. b- between causing something bad versus allowing something bad to happen. And then another one that's going on is kind of beyond those. So if you imagine that, that there was going to be the same people living in the future in both cases, but let's suppose in one case they, they build some glorious utopian society and they, they you know, have these profound discoveries and they, they do everything that we'd really wish our future to achieve. And in the other case, they have a fairly bland existence. It's okay. Uh, you know, there's good TV, but, uh, but that's about it. Where something you know immense and important is lost, we would still at least think that there's there's some <laughs> serious loss there. 
and it would deeply sadden us. It might not cause us quite the same feelings we would get if it was going to be a, a terrible outcome. But it's actually one level more abstract than that, what's going on in this case, if it's the case of extinction, because that's something where these people won't exist at all, as, as you were getting at. And then it's not even the case that, that you'll have these people who will have lives worse than they would have had, but rather there won't be people instead of there being people with good lives. And so that brings us to an area called population ethics, which tries to, to understand such things. And there's, there's lots of different approaches to it. And some of these approaches go with this intuition. They say, yeah, actually, a painless ceasing of existence of humanity wouldn't be bad. I think that, that when you try to actually get such a theory to work, and you try to start to fill in the gaps about what it says, that there are tremendous challenges for getting such a theory to work. They, they tend to end up saying some fairly ridiculous conclusions, in my view. And I, I really haven't seen that spelt out very well at all. Mm. But that, that takes us pretty far afield into some pretty technical stuff with ethics and decision theory as to what goes wrong there. But I, I am sympathetic to, to that, that basic idea that when it comes to questions about well-being of, of future people, that it, you know, it may matter less to not have anyone instead of to have someone with a great life than the difference between having someone with a great life and having that same person with a mediocre life. But it still seems to me that the plausible versions of these views say that it still does matter somewhat. Is there any risk of a kind of perverse creeping of the, the value consideration here? I'm, I'm thinking of, for instance, if we agree that it's a, a monstrous crime to foreclose the future, is it a crime of some sort not to have children or to not, not to have as many children as one could possibly have, provided one could give them good lives? So let's say I have six children, but I decline to have a seventh. As it stands, I, I only have two and have declined to have a third. Have I committed a, a murder of sorts or, or have I, am I culpable for some harm by the same logic that we would use to value a, an unrealized future? I, I don't think so. So, so the most extreme view in, in this area is something called the total view. And in fact, uh, Derek Parfit named this as he was uh, you know, the, the, the real pioneer of understanding population ethics, as, yep. as well as uh, one of the pioneers of existential risk and, uh, and many other things. And the total view says that uh, we just add up the well-being of all the lives that would ever exist. And that's how we, we get the value for, for an entire time period. You know, the entire universe over all time is like the value of all of the, the lives that are lived in it, all added together. And uh, that's a very simple view. It has various challenges and conclusions which, which sound somewhat implausible. But even on that view, it doesn't say that we should try to have as many children as possible. Because it's, it's very plausible, as I was saying, that humanity will last for, say, more than a million years beyond where we are now. That, that's a typical species lifespan if we don't, you know, we don't screw it up. And it's also quite plausible that we won't last very long at all, because uh, this will be our last century because of mistakes we make. That means that there are actions that, that humanity can take, you know, because of the actions that individuals take, that, uh, that would really make that difference of uh, millions of years of additional civilization being lived or not. And the impact that you can have on that is far greater than, than the impact you'll have trying to improve the universe by adding more children into it. So 
even if even if you took the total view, it would say it's very important to devote your life to ensuring that we have a future rather than it's really important to just quickly pack a few more people in before mm. we possibly go extinct. So it wouldn't have those views. You could come up with hypothetical thought experiments where you take away the risk of extinction and you do various other things, and then you ask about the question. And in some of these hypotheticals, if you strip them down enough, it would have conclusions that say it is indeed really important to have more people. And people, people often find that quite unintuitive. But in the case that we're thinking about here, you can say people actually find it quite intuitive. So they find, the thing they find unintuitive is that having, say, twice as many people at one time would be twice as good, assuming there was no overpopulation problems and so forth. But they don't find it so unintuitive that humanity living for twice as long would be twice as good. Right. When the people are distributed across time instead of across space, we actually find it fairly intuitive that uh, lasting twice as long is, is twice as good. And that's the type of case that we're considering here. And also, even people who say that, uh, that ultimately they take these what are called person-affecting views, where they think that if, if our actions would lead to no one existing instead of someone having a good life, that that's not bad at all. Even people with those views tend to think that there are things other than the well-beings of future people that matter to their actions. And for example, they might be moved by considerations about duty or about should we betray the trust of these 10,000 generations that came before us and various other ones of these arguments. And in addition to that, most of these existential risks come with a chance of extinction and also a chance of some kind of unrecovered collapse or a chance of a dystopian future that gets locked in forever. And so it's actually very hard to pull these things apart. And that people who really decided that to take this hardline view that it's irrelevant if you make it so that there's no great future for humanity, that they think it's you know, totally morally permissible to cancel the entire future of humanity. I think that's a pretty crazy view. But, it, but even if you kind of thought that in terms of the well-being of the future people, it would still be the case that, uh, that there are all of these other reasons to protect humanity and mm. that there's all of these particular existential risks that would cause a civilizational collapse. And those ones are the ones that are worthy of all of our attention. So it wouldn't really yeah. change things all that much. They, they can't kind of get out of it that way and say, I'm just going to ignore this whole area. It instead would just push them to focus on certain risks instead of other risks. Yeah, there's some asymmetries here related to the ones you mentioned that I think anchor us, you know, you know, rightly or wrongly, I think in some cases, rightly. I think there's a, just an asymmetry between happiness and suffering. There's no amount of positive experience that seems to balance the scale when you compare it to the worst possible negative experience. You know, if I told you, you know, in the next hour you could have the greatest possible happiness as long as it were followed by an hour of the worst possible misery, you know, however you order those things, most people would say, uh, you know, I'm good, I'll just take the, I'll take the status quo. And so there seems to be an asymmetry there and also the, it seems to be related at least to our bias here is related to the, the well-known asymmetry between loss aversion and an appetite for gains that most people feel, mm -hmm. and, and just the moral wrongness of taking away what people already have, as opposed to simply not giving them the thing that they might have had. And when you stack those things together, the truly negative outcome here is not just all of us 
getting a dial tone for eternity, but something like the dystopian lock-in that you describe in the book, the road warrior outcome, or worse, for lack of a better metaphor. And that's something that I think no one has any doubt about the wisdom or or importance of, of our doing everything we can to avoid. And perhaps helpfully for the purposes of motivating people, it on some level seems the likeliest outcome. It seems more likely that we will make catastrophic mistakes of the sort that produce a you know, many generations, maybe every subsequent generation of just horrible human lives characterized by struggle that everyone would want to avoid than it does that we will just make the world perfectly uninhabitable such that not even a single community of people is left. I don't know, I forget whether you take a position on that in the book. Do you think one is is much more likely than the other? Yeah, it's a it's a challenging question. I, I don't I don't explicitly try to pull out that distinction and and talk about it. But but one thing I do include in my I, I give a table of probabilities, which are my my best guesses of these things. In fact, some people have said to me that they were disappointed that that the book doesn't argue strongly enough in order to convince them of these probabilities, and that's kind of reading them the wrong way. Ultimately, the, the reason I included these, these chances was more that, I mean, a lot of people advise me not to include any numbers uh, about you know, my best estimates. But I thought that that was really doing the reader a disservice because it's this kind of thing where it's, if I say there's, a, there's a, you know, a dire risk of a particular outcome, they don't know whether that's a one in a thousand risk or a five in six risk. People describe things as dire risks in both cases, and the same for many other words. So I wanted to try to give a ballpark of what I was thinking, and I did include in this in this table uh, these other anthropogenic risks at about one in fifty over the century, and that that's where I include these risks of these dystopian scenarios. So about a two percent chance, and I think that that risk would be higher in future centuries. I think that there's good reason to expect that we can. We can reach agreement across the globe at some point that extinction would be really terrible. And we, we may have a lot of bickering about who's prepared to pay the costs to avoid extinction and have a big tragedy of the commons there. But I think that we can develop mechanisms that ultimately get around that. But when it comes to like choosing a future path that we go down, there are some outcomes that would be considered dystopian to some people and not to others, for example. Hmm. And that that, I think, is a much more thorny issue over the long-term future. And uh, I give my estimate of the existential risk this century at one in six. My estimate overall is about one in two. So that is to say, I think there's a five in six chance we get through the century with our long-term potential intact. And that I think there's about a one in two chance that we ultimately fulfill that potential over the long term. But therefore, I would say that most of the existential risk to come, in my best guess, is in future centuries. And I think a lot of that risk is of this form of dystopian outcomes we're trying to avoid. So I guess ultimately, I would say that, that there is a larger share there than there is in extinction. Yeah, you, you reference some of this in the book, but there are ideologically driven ways of achieving dystopian capture. So that, you, know, you could imagine a truly totalitarian state that is 
fully effective and secured by the most advanced technology and the lockup never breaks because the ideology behind it is sufficiently captivating. And just imagine if mm-hmm. the Islamic State had all the technological prowess that they could aspire to have. You know, mm-hmm. the Islamic State in 50 years with the full panopticon of surveillance and, and all the rest, well, then it's easy to see how that endures for a very long time. So let's talk about a few of these anthropogenic mm-hmm. risks. And maybe, I guess let's talk about pandemic first. And again, it's the silver lining here is we're getting a chance to see how disruptive a fairly benign, you know, all things considered, pandemic is. I mean, this is, it remains to be seen what a terrible problem this is economically and politically, ultimately. But in terms of a stress test, I mean, this is about as minor as Mother Nature has on the menu, considering what is also on the menu. And, and when you just look at how recklessly we have played at the edges of this in our own experiments with viruses and other pathogens, I mean, this is... Um, you go through this history a little bit in the book. I mean, I, I remember at the time reading accounts of this one example that you talk about when this Dutch group was playing around with the uh, H5N1 virus and trying to get it to be um, infectious within humans. I mean, they, on their account, this was well-intentioned. This was not an effort to weaponize. Mm-hmm. This was a well-intentioned research program to see just what are the steps involved in getting this to spread among people. And so they were breeding it, I believe, in ferrets to see how it could spread among ferrets, and they, they achieved that. And, but this had 60% lethality in people, right? So this is orders of magnitude beyond what we're dealing with with COVID-19. And it just seems, in retrospect, insanely irresponsible when you marry it to the, the account that you give briefly in the book of the kinds of failures we've had at containment, even in our best labs. Uh, and it, it actually remains to be seen whether COVID-19 was born of a failure of containment in a lab in China. I think there are conspiracy theories around that, but there's also some evidence that that may have been the case. That it may not have come from a wet market. It may have come from you know, probably well-intentioned research on coronaviruses. Uh, again, no one's alleging that this is, or no sane person, <laughs> I don't think, is alleging that this is a weaponized virus that was maliciously spread. But we find it very difficult to keep the germs in the lab, it seems, even in the best labs. And the most surprising example, perhaps, at least of the accounts you give in the book, is what happened in the UK with foot and mouth disease. Maybe you want to run through that litany of failure just to give us some context. But then, and then let's talk about how you see the pandemic problem as uh, largely one of, of our own making. Ultimately, there's a, there's a whole lot of different things tangled up together with pandemics. So there's the type of pandemics I, I call natural pandemics with, uh, with scare quotes around the natural. And these include these uh, uh, zoonotic diseases that, that come into humans from other animals, as is the leading theories you know, around COVID-19. And these are in some ways a form of natural risk, but I treat them in the book in the anthropogenic risk section for the reason that the argument about these 2,000 centuries that we've gone through so far without succumbing 
don't quite apply because they're, they only apply if the risk per century has been staying constant or going down over time. But there's some reasonable possibility that the risk from naturally arising pandemics could actually be increasing over time with the additional interconnectedness of the world and the dense living conditions that we have and things like this. There's also reasons to think it's going down based on better medicine and science and understandings of quarantine. So, but it's at least unclear. Ultimately, I put the chance of that around about where I put the entire category of natural risks at about one in 10,000 per century. So still smaller than, than most of the anthropogenic risks. But then there are forms of engineered pandemics. And the most benign of these is, is what, what you mentioned. It's so-called gain-of-function research, where well-meaning scientists are making pathogens. They're taking pathogens, some of which are very concerning, such as this bird flu, H5N1, and then they're making it more transmissible or more lethal. And this creates something that potentially is worse than anything that nature was going to give us. So it then breaks out of this argument about uh, why it is that we have, can you know, breathe some sigh of relief based on the historical record. And uh, that's what was going on with this, this Dutch lab. But then if you take this, uh, this case with the, the lab escapes to show why it is that even this well, well-intentioned research might actually be able to escape the lab, in 2001, uh, you might remember from the, the television seeing these, this footage of burning livestock in Britain, where foot and mouth disease, a giant outbreak, caused eight billion pounds of economic damage and led to six million uh, livestock being killed. This was, this was huge. But then, just six years later, in 2007, there was another foot and mouth disease outbreak, and it was ultimately traced to a field which was right next to a biolab, where they were working on exactly the strain of foot and mouth disease that was found in the field next to them. It was found that this had leaked out of a pipe. What's not so well known, well, I mean, it's not that well known that this came out of a lab at all, to be honest. It wasn't very mm. well publicized, despite it being of very high interest. I'm not sure why the media didn't, didn't run with that. That the maximum fine that was able to be levied for this, despite the previous outbreak causing £8 billion worth of damages, the maximum fine they could levy was £5,000. And it's not clear that they even levied that. And then another two weeks after they started operation again, when their license was renewed, there was another leak from the same facility. And then the license was renewed again, and it's still operating today. And this is uh, not some kind of low security lab. It is functioning at the highest level of biosecurity, BSL-4. To my knowledge, it is the only known escape from a BSL-4 facility, but it did cause an ongoing disease transmission among animals, but it was still a disease of highest concern due to the economic damage that it had caused. And it's also, it's, you know, it's known to people in the trade, but not that well known. The last case of uh, smallpox was a lab escape yeah. from a, uh, a lab in the UK. It's fairly well known that only America and uh, Russia have these uh, stocks of smallpox after it was eradicated. But the UK also had a stock of smallpox. But in, in their shame from uh, releasing this thing that had been eradicated in the world, back into the world and killing more people, they destroyed their stock. And then uh, with SARS, SARS escaped a lab in Beijing and uh, infected 
I think the the mother of one of the employees. So there was a there was an outbreak after that. So we we do have cases of very dangerous, you know, the, the most dangerous diseases really known known to us, or at least things that we we list in the the very highest disease class that have escaped labs. And so given that that, that happens, it seems that even these BSL4 labs, for all the effort that people go to to design them to be safe and to run them safely. While there are still known outbreaks happening from these very, very severe diseases, I don't think that that we have anywhere safe enough to be doing this kind of gain of function research at the moment. Mm. So that that's the first form of the engineered pandemics. But as you as you suggest, I'm even more concerned about the possibilities of bioterror, where some malevolent individuals deliberately try to design some weapon to inflict maximum damage on others. The, the Aum Shinrikyo cult in, uh, in Japan was a, a useful example of this. Uh, they killed 22 people, injured thousands, using uh, VX and uh, sarin nerve gas. And they, among other things, that they had a, a, a doomsday ideology where they were interested in destroying all humans. And they recruited scientists who helped them do these things. That they tried to release anthrax, but they didn't do it properly. Thank God. So there is this, this issue. There's not many people who have these kinds of terrible motivations. You know, why would you want to kill everyone? But some people do. And there's this amazing democratization of this biotechnology. You know, the, the frontier of biotechnology is, is moving so quickly. We're developing these amazingly powerful technologies. And then we're also democratizing them so quickly that it's, uh, you know, in less than two years after CRISPR was developed, it was being used in winning competitions entries in, among college students doing a, a, a biology competition, mm. the iGEM competitions. But the same is true for gene drives. Another, you know, these are both potentially Nobel Prize worthy developments that, you know, at one point, there was you know, only one team in the whole world that was, uh, that was bright enough to develop them. And then two years later, you know, bright college students can replicate them. Then you know, two years later again, or 10 years later, you know, there's going to be more and more people who can do these things. And as these, this pool of people keeps growing, there is this real concern that it will eventually include some of these extremely dangerous people. Yeah. And when you look at the resources we've allocated toward preventing the downside risk here. I mean, you take an example like the Biological Weapons Convention, which was founded in 1972. And as you detail in your book, I don't know if this is still true, but at the time in which you wrote this, it, it had just four employees and a budget that was insufficient to run a single fast food restaurant. So as you might expect, this is, this is an organization that has very little ability to detect and enforce anything. And we know that even though they were signatories to the convention, they, the Soviets had a very active biological weapons program for decades, and the Israelis haven't even signed it. And it's just, I'm not sure we know how fully humanity has retired biological weaponry as a, as a mode of making war. But even though we, we've aspired to close the door to this, we're just not in a position to know what's happening. And Again, we we run into one of these unhappy asymmetries, whereas you know, given the kinds of technological advances you just discussed, it's always easier 
to break things than to fix them or to break things than to protect them. And as we democratize, you know, fully democratize this ability to, in this case, you know, weaponize pathogens, it does just seem like it's a matter, just a matter of time before this ability spreads to the, the wrong sorts of minds. And it would only take, in the limit, one person to decide mm-hmm. to cancel the human experiment. And um, this actually reminds me of the conversation I was having with your friend Nick Bostrom along these lines, and just what the remedy for this kind of situation could be. I mean, as you know, and as I'll remind our listeners, he has this great analogy of the, the urn of invention, where we're reaching into an urn and pulling out colored balls, each of which are inventions, or, you know, ideas that have great you know, promise or power, and the alternatives are these are you know there are white balls that are just wholly benign in their set of implications there are gray balls that are both benign or harmful by turns it depends on how you use them you know you can put into this category everything is from you know a simple knife which can be used to save or kill somebody to things like nuclear power right or the nuclear chain reaction which we can mm-hmm. power our economy uh, and maybe escape global warming if we uh, do this wisely or we can destroy ourselves. But Nick imagines that there may in fact be black balls in there, which is to say that the retrieval of one of those is synonymous with the ruination of our world, either because it's a breakthrough in knowledge that makes it just so damn easy to destroy everything, or it's a technology that it's just by definition so pernicious that we're its invention is always going to lead us over the edge of the precipice. But so he, as remedy for this situation, he proposes some surprising things, and they can sound fairly dystopian in their own right. I mean, things like what he calls turnkey totalitarianism, where we would want to, you know, given the, the spread of, of uh, you know, in this case, let's say. Um, Technology that allows us to weaponize various you know biological pathogens, if that gets spread to every science fair on earth, potentially, which is to say every kid who's at all technologically inclined can do it in the limit we'll we'll need to know what everyone is doing with their hands at all times, right, which suggests a level of surveillance and an ability to intercede when people start behaving badly that seems to come straight out of Orwell. Maybe this is the the moment to pivot to how you view the path forward. What do we do given this trajectory of increasing power and therefore increasing risk? Maybe you want to include in in your thinking here what you call uh, information hazards, because that's obviously part of the the, the spread of of information that, that confers this power is obviously central to the problem. I mean, these these black balls that you mentioned, these technologies, uh, would be examples of information hazards. It's ultimately, particularly, these come up a lot with uh, with biotech and uh, with biosecurity when we're thinking about the dangers that we could face. There's this real challenge that suppose we just we just talk freely about this, then we end up accidentally spreading information. I mean, we're we're doing it right now. Uh, we're, mm. we're mentioning some things that could be dangerous to tell people about. So an example which I will give, because it's, it's well and truly known enough, 
is that the DNA sequence for smallpox uh, is available on the internet. It uh, takes about five minutes to find it and uh, have your screen full of, you know, uh, G's and T's and A's and C's. And it's, it's something where, you know, we, we had this situation, right, where it was considered so dangerous that only the two superpowers had stocks of it. And then, lo and behold, people found some old, old samples of smallpox that hadn't been destroyed, sequenced them, and put it on the internet. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of crazy. Mm. Yeah. And they thought that they were, they were helping science. But that was a, a massive information hazard. It's quite useful now to use it as a go-to example because we don't want to all use different examples of information hazards or we'll end up spreading heaps of them around. So it's best to just keep using the, the same one or two. But there are things like this where, you know, we, we talked about pathogens escaping the lab and we go to a lot of effort to stop that happening. But the whole system of, uh, of uh, biosciences are designed to have ideas escape the lab to project them as far and wide as possible. But some of these ideas would enable, would enable uh, malevolent people or states to develop very dangerous technologies uh, and, to, and to wreak a lot of harm. The same thing kind of comes up when people are talking about terrorism. You know, you know those conversations that say, I don't know why the people in, uh, in the September 11 attacks did, did this with the planes. Why didn't they do X? You know, people will tweet that out or something, you know, just giving more ideas for these things. Actually, an interesting example is, is what's called attention hazards, where it's the very fact that the security community is known to be looking into something is what, what tips off the, the perpetrators. And that's happened a couple of times. The, uh, the Japanese developed uh, a bioweapons program because they knew that the European powers were we're talking about treaties around bioweapons. This is around about the end of the First World War. Because they thought, well, why would they be doing all of these treaties if there wasn't something there? Let's get in on it mm. and, and use such weapons against the, the Chinese in World War II. And the, uh, also um, Al-Qaeda, you know, quoted on the record as noting uh, that uh, the US was especially paranoid about bioattacks. And so they decided that they really needed to, to get in on, on bioweapons. So it, it makes it really difficult to have some of these conversations. And so some of this necessarily has to happen in the security community rather than in places like my book, where I, I can't mention all of the, uh, the things that worry me the most. Right. I'm even frankly concerned that the COVID pandemic is on that level functioning as a, a massive commercial for just how fully you can disrupt a society with something comparatively benign. Mm -hmm. You just could change a few things about this and it would be, you know, perhaps an order of magnitude worse just in, in its perception and therefore in the economic damage it would cause. I mean, just even if it were exactly as it is, but it just was preferentially killing kids as opposed to old people, the level of panic would be much higher. And so it's just, it's hard to see any terrorist organization fail to draw the lesson from this, that if you want to grind your enemy's civilization to a halt, and you don't have much of a civilization on your side to worry about, in terms of a long lever you can pull with both hands, spreading a contagious pathogen is a good way to do it. Yeah. And uh, so when it comes to what we can do about all of this, you know, how, how can we you know, what actions do we need to take? I think that 
we don't, I mean, ultimately this is in the early days of understanding this. And I, I give a, a fairly long list of uh, research and policy ideas that we could, we could adopt in the book. But I, I'll, I'll give you a taste of some of it. So there are things that we could do, such as uh, some fairly obvious ones to start with. For example, the current uh, US administration let a major nuclear treaty with Russia lapse, the INF Treaty. Right. And also, they seem to be letting the New START arms reduction treaty lapse, which is, which is very serious. This was one of the major reasons that we have you know, far fewer nuclear weapons now than we did you know, a decade ago, is because of this, uh, this New START treaty. And as far as I understand it, Russia is, uh, is happy to sign and to renew it, but it's going to lapse early next year unless that gets signed. I think that's insane not to sign this treaty. Well, uh, so that, let me remind you, we have a president who, when he came into office and was briefed about our nuclear stockpile, he was wondering why he couldn't have even more weapons than Kennedy had. He saw the, the gradual disarmament in terms of numbers over the preceding decades as a sign of uh, you know, a loss of, of American prowess and, and, a, and a bad sign. Hmm. So this, uh, <laughs> we're, not, we're not in especially good hands on that front. Yeah. Another example would be to ensure that uh, DNA synthesis, which is you know, the creating of DNA to order, that it's screened for dangerous pathogens. This is done somewhat at the moment. Some of the companies that produce it have taken this upon themselves to screen it for known dangerous sequences, but, but some don't. So you know, a step we could take is to ensure that it's all screened. If that can't be done through self-regulation, then to introduce international regulation to do it. Another example is to be more transparent around accidents in, uh, in these BSL-3 and 4 laboratories. Mm-hmm. And uh, we could be running uh, some scenario or many more scenario planning exercises for severe engineered pandemics as well. And you mentioned um, how much easier it is to do damage than to prevent it. We don't quite know if, if that's ultimately true, but unfortunately it does appear that the, the indications that, that I see suggest that it is. But there are things that we can do to use the new biotechnologies in order to give us better defenses. So one example that I'm excited about at the moment is uh, pathogen-blind disease surveillance. So the idea there would be that uh, if, you, uh, if you get these conundrum cases where the doctor doesn't know what's wrong with the patient, they've ruled out the normal things that could be causing these symptoms, and they don't know what it could be. And the early cases of COVID would have been these conundrums. Then you send a sample of it to a central lab in, in each country which then sequences the DNA of everything in the sample. So this will include cells from the, the person themselves. You could uh, actually, as soon as you detect that it's human DNA, you could stop sequencing it to deal with privacy concerns. But you also sequence any virus or bacterium that's in it. And then you could use bioinformatics to cross-compare this with all known organisms. And in the case of COVID, you would have detected that this was something that the most similar organism was SARS, but that it was substantially different and unknown to science. So you would have been able to work that out in December instead of in January. And if we had technology like that, which is currently being developed, and it looks like it should be affordable as well, that then uh, it would actually be quite protective even against bioweapons that were completely unknown. So 
you know, we do have some new defensive techniques as well. And maybe it's possible that actually defense will scale better than offense. But I'm not that hopeful about that. If you look at things like nuclear weapons, you know, in terms of explosives, it it definitely doesn't work that way. The offense, Mm. the offense wins. And I'm worried that that will be the case in many areas, but we should at least be excited about what defense we can find. And we should obviously do things like bring this biological weapons convention into line with the chemical weapons convention, which has, instead of $1.4 million per year, it has 80 million. And, you know, scale up the staff commensurately to give it the power to investigate suspected breaches, which it currently doesn't have. I mean, it, it currently has very little. So th- some things like this are at the international nas- or national level. I think that, uh, that uh, the US and, uh, and Russia should take their nuclear weapons off hair trigger alert. And I think that that's worth doing, even if they can't get bilateral agreement. It's worth unilaterally taking mm-hmm. them off this hair trigger alert, which has come very close you know, to, to triggering accidental nuclear wars. So in particular, in that case, uh, the submarine deterrent, I think, suffices, even if there's some risk that they wouldn't be able to respond fast enough with the, the ICBMs. Yeah. Uh, so there's a whole lot of these types of policy suggestions, as well as ways of doing more research you know, for, for academics into these areas. But there's also things that we, you know, there's kind of bigger picture questions as well. I, I think ultimately, we need a kind of awakening to and, and stepping back and taking this perspective of humanity in our ethics and really thinking about how much is at stake here and trying to go beyond, you know, the parochial perspectives, like either either the first personal ethical perspective, which is the most common, or a community or a national perspective, or even the global perspective, which we've, you know, we've come to embrace in recent decades of everyone alive today and what should we be doing together as a whole and to be asking what should humanity be doing to get its house in order and really start asking even bigger questions about what international institutions would be needed to ensure that ultimately that humanity never once succumbs to such a risk uh, and they, they, these are you know really big questions but you know and, and they often feel impossible you, you could imagine at the moment a new UN institute that, that is in some way responsible for, you know, has a handful of people and, and is kind of the place on existential risks. But it's harder to imagine a binding treaty or something at the moment, mm. or in fact, an entire reform to the Security Council in order to make avoiding existential risks a, uh, a key component of the purpose of the Security Council. But Things like this have happened in the past. You know, that the UN is not 100 years old. Every now and then you do get a major crisis that shakes things up and, and new radical possibilities open up. And I think that, that some of that might be the case here uh, when it comes to, to COVID, where we, you know, we, we notice our vulnerabilities and we learn that kind of lesson, that we're still vulnerable and that maybe we should make some pretty big changes to our institutions in order to to fundamentally protect humanity. Yeah. The thing that concerns me most in the, in the near term around that is not our inability to get any of this right, I mean, to figure out what to do in the face of, of obvious risks. It's our seeming inability to have a useful conversation toward that end. I mean, there's so much misinformation and conspiracy thinking and political factionalism and bad incentives 
within nation states and between nation states that it just there's so much to cut through to get to the point where sane people dealing with a a space of around which there are facts over which there is some consensus can have a conversation about what the best solutions are mm-hmm. you know it's like I, we're so riven by the echo chamber effect of social media and yeah, but it's, there's now a total lack of respect for institutions, you know, for good and bad reasons, but, you know, often bad. And that includes the press and science and scientists and, and universities and just anything that could seem to suggest itself as an elite source of information as opposed to anyone's basic intuition about, you know, what to do in the face of a pandemic. Our conversation, which is really our only, at the end of the day, is our only tool by which to navigate. You know, it's just, can we persuade one another that we have empirical reality in hand or some corner of it and uh, some model about, you know, what it's going to do in the next two weeks and what to do about that? I mean, it's just, we're groping in the dark on so many levels and the way in which our politics is seeming to ensure that darkness is pretty depressing. So I, I, it's, 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 it's wonderful to have such a, a clarifying voice on the podcast and to have it at book length as well. Yeah. But n- now we have to get people to take these problems seriously. Yeah, I was worried I would uh, I would bring you down with uh, this conversation about these risks. And uh, <laughs> no, no. I, I was already <laughs> yeah, you, down. Yeah, uh, no, that the, the, these are these are major challenges. Uh, I, I would say, you know, in brief on that, uh, I am very worried about some of these these ch- challenges. There's a whole lot of different levels to what you were talking about. One of them is a challenge to a kind of public epistemology, the way in which we come to, uh, uh, to understand new, important, true things that's going on there. That, that's something that is, uh, is deeply concerning to me, as well as perhaps a, a separate issue of not caring about deep, important, true things, even if you accept them. Hmm. But I would say as a practical matter, yeah, we can't start this with trying to have a, a public conversation where everyone is involved at the moment, you know, but that doesn't mean you can't have a conversation where everyone who wants to be involved can't participate. So I think you you want to leave it open to people to join in, but not broadcast it into the faces of people who are just just want to yell at you. But you want you know, so you want to be inclusive in as much as you can, but also recognize that uh, that you need to start a bit smaller than that in order to try to really work out which ways of thinking about this and talking about this, which ways resonate, which ways are actually compelling, which mm-hmm. ways are flawed and have problems that, are, that need to be addressed before, before moving forward. I think that there is some version of this, ultimately, that will go far, though. If I look back and think about common sense morality in 1950, it had almost no component, at least in the West, had almost no component of the environment in it. It's actually shocking. I've got a, a old uh, children's books for for my daughter from this era. I think it's actually early '60s, and it just has these pictures of people just asphalting the wilderness and putting up literally hot dog stands and flashing lights. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's unironically kind of champions this as uh, as progress. It's it's bizarre. And, and giant wood chipping mills being explained to children and things like where the whole forest gets torn down. And you know, it's it's, it's you know. Amazing, but we're ultimately, if you look at like the time from Silent Spring being published in 1962, I think by the end of the decade, America, Canada, 
the UK and Australia all had ministers for the environment and, you know, cabinet level position on the environment, something that wasn't even part of the general conception of morality a decade earlier. And uh, animal welfare, particularly through vegetarianism, but a whole lot of aspects about it have really kind of come onto the stage as a, as a central aspect. And to, to, to the extent to which I think too much so, whether someone's a vegetarian is sometimes used as a litmus test about whether they're an ethical person. Well, that mm. wouldn't have happened in almost any other century, at least in the West. So you can get these very big changes in what we see as the domain of morality. And so I think that even though these ideas about the continuation of humanity and avoiding these things that would threaten to irrevocably foreclose our potential, even though that's not normally part of what we think of as leading an ethical life or kind of the, the big ethical questions facing us, you know, I really think that, that we could come to embrace this. And when you think about the anti-nuclear movement in the, uh, the 80s in particular in America, you know, this was huge. The biggest protest in America's history was anti-nuclear protest, and in large part because of these concerns about the end of the world. And if you look at the, the current protests, or at least before the, the lockdowns, of, about the environment and concerns that it, it could irrevocably destroy our environment and perhaps lead to, lead to extinction or a permanent collapse of civilization, I, I might quibble about exactly what the probabilities of that are. But this was a, is a something that also has really resonated with, uh, with a lot of people and becoming the, the biggest protest movement of our time. And, and they're both about existential risks. Mm. Uh, so I think that this, this broader idea that it's, I think it takes too long if you, if you wait until a particular risk has built up enough of a community to be really, really active constituents, you kind of lose a generation on that risk. So I think we need to be more proactive and embrace this idea of, of existential risk on the whole as the thing we're trying to fight, or humanity's potential as the thing we're trying to protect. That you know, it doesn't seem impossible to me that uh, in 50 years' time we'll be looking back at these types of conversations and be shocked that, uh, that it wasn't common sense, that this was one of the most important issues of our time. Yeah, two issues we haven't spoken about are AI and climate change, both of which you, you talk about in the book. Uh -huh. uh, you, you and I have been part of the same AI alignment conversation. We were both at that, that initial Puerto Rico meeting. I don't, did we meet there? I can't remember if. I don't think we did. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I mean, there were only like seventy-five people there, but <laughs> I don't think we met. But yeah, so that's a perhaps a good example of a smallish conversation proceeding among those interested in the topic uh -huh. and making some gains. I, I don't know how optimistic are you that we've made progress on the AI alignment question. Well, I, I think we've made a lot of progress on. Um, the conversation around it. It was something where if we go back to a couple of years before that conference and say before Nick Bostrom's book, Superintelligence, came out, mm. I think that there was a, a real danger that the whole field of, of AI would just reject these critiques and kind of close ranks and, uh, and maybe just power on ahead as if there was no problem. But now, you know, many prominent people within artificial intelligence think that this is somewhere between something you know, deserving serious thought, or perhaps the, the biggest issue facing humanity. With, with people like, uh, you know, like Demis Hassabis, who, uh, who's the CEO of DeepMind, or Stuart Russell, who, uh, you know, wrote the, the 
preeminent textbook on AI, uh, both being people who think this is deeply important. And that's, that is, you know, we've come a long way there. So I'm quite excited about that momentum in the conversation. And there's actually not that much disagreement between the different parties. There, there are people who s- stress their points of skepticism, who say, oh, it's probably going to be decades before any of this happens, before we develop systems that could really pose a threat to humanity. The current systems can't do that. And premature regulation would be terrible. But that's what the people like Nick Bostrom agree with as well. They're not mm. saying it will happen within the next 20 years. And they're, they're explicitly saying that they think premature regulation could be a big mistake. But they're saying that it's something where, at the moment, the scientists in the field need to devote more than a very tiny fraction of their effort on aligning these systems. So I'm, uh, I'm somewhat optimistic with the, the general direction. But when it comes to the particular approaches for alignment, I've been following the technical work on that quite closely. And it, it does look like there's a long way to go. Yeah, so I, I skirted over that just because I've talked mm-hmm. about it a bunch on the podcast. I've had Nick and, and Stuart here before, and I, actually Stuart two times at least, and also Eliezer Yudkowsky and Max Tegmark a couple of times. So I've covered a lot, So I, and I know, I know that it's also in your wheelhouse, and, and you give people coverage of it in your book. And then climate change, we don't really hit here, largely because on some level, it, it just it requires its own podcast, given how big a concern it is and how little consensus there seems to be politically around what to do about it. But it's also, I mean, maybe just in brief, you might say where it, where it should be placed among these other risks you're thinking about, because it doesn't seem to be the most existential of uh, existential risks, even though it might be a very grave one. Yeah, it is definitely a very serious risk. And in fact, we're, you know, it's going to be very bad even in the, the best case scenarios, really. And there is a, a serious amount of unknown about how many degrees of warming there'll be. When it came time to do the research for the book, I talked to a lot of experts in this field and, made, you know, and, and they, they checked over the final manuscript as well. I really wanted to, to get this right. And I found that, that actually, if you looked at the uncertainty about how many of the big feedbacks would run to completion, such as the, the melting of the, the permafrost or the methane clathrates under the ocean, and also about this, this massive unknown question about the climate sensitivity, which is to say, how much will temperature go up for a given amount of carbon emissions? Mm. When you put all the uncertainty together, and actually also uncertainty about what we're going to do about it, will we continue to kind of increase emissions or will we quickly get it under control? We really have very little idea how much warming there'll be, and it could be far more degrees of warming than are normally talked about. Mm. People often talk about two or four and say, in some cases, you know, we're going to consider six as an outlandish exercise. But I think that it's, it's quite plausible that there could be as many as 10 degrees of warming. So I was, I was quite shocked by that when I was, when I was doing the research. Yeah. But by the same token, if you... Talk to scientists about how that could be an existential catastrophe. Could, we, could that make humanity go extinct or cause some kind of unrecoverable collapse of civilization in every part of the globe? It's very difficult to see how it could. And if you look at the particular mechanisms that are suggested, such as the collapse of the Gulf Stream or just heat stress due to uh, you know, people being unable to sweat you know, to cool their bodies down because it's so hot or various other things, 
it, droughts and you know so forth. It is very hard to see how it could be an existential catastrophe, and so, but it, you also can't really rule it out. And I found a similar thing when it comes to nuclear war that nuclear winter could be much worse than most people think. But the experts who are looking at it rarely suggest that it could actually cause the end of humanity. They're worried that it could kill a billion people, which is you know absolutely terrible. And I don't want to you know minimize any of that. But the uh, the topic of conversation in the book is about could there be things that are the end of humanity that have this special qualities that I want to analyze and discuss. So I have to set aside some of these truly terrible levels that fall short of that. And I would put them both as a kind of very rough guess, well, a bit more than a guess, but a rough estimate, at something like a one in a thousand chance of ending humanity's story this century. And I, I want to actually, maybe that's not quite right, because as an existential risk, I'd put them at that level. I do suggest something in the book which I call an existential risk factor, which is to say that there are certain things that they don't directly destroy humanity. A good example is great power war. It's not that exactly that uh, that you know war is a pretty generic thing. It's not itself an existential risk. But if you ask the question of how much less existential risk would there be this century if we knew there was not going to be a great power war? My guess is it would go down by something like a tenth. If so, then on, on my estimates, that's something like a couple of percentage points of existential risk that would be removed if we could ensure peace between great powers. Hmm. People's other estimates, they might vary, but I think you'll find a similar kind of pattern where it turns out that that puts it above many different risks, including it, you know, it has more of an impact on existential risk than does something like you know, asteroids or comets or any of the natural risks. And I think that it could be that, uh, I, I don't estimate it in the book, but it could be that nuclear war and climate change have a somewhat outsized impact as risk factors. That if we knew that we could really take climate change off the table, that would lower other risks substantially by removing certain tensions between nations, even if climate change itself wouldn't be the thing that does us in. So I do mm. think that that is a, an open possibility too. Yeah, and if we broaden the definition of catastrophe to include the horrible world outcome, you know, just mm -hmm. the endurance of humanity is not really in question, and even the, the endurance of something like civilization isn't in question, but, you know, we have a thousand years of terrible life. That's when, that's when climate change and, and uh, nuclear war and, and great power war come into their own as being major variables, I think. Before we break, Toby, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah. A lot of people think that, that if you study this stuff all day, and, and that it would be hopelessly depressing. And, and maybe we, our last uh, couple of hours, we've really delved into some pretty dark, dark possibilities. But I wanted to say that when I think about this, and in my general life, I'm not spending my time w working on this being depressed. Because it's really the, it's my excitement about how good things could be how we could continue these trends of progress and, and life getting better for people across the world and have, you know, uh, confront the remaining injustices and suffering and really build a, a vastly better world and have that world last for thousands or, or more generations into the future. I, I really think that the, the prospects for humanity are almost impossibly bright if only we can make it that far. And 
we all have challenges and things to improve, but we kind of can improve those things later. But when it comes to these existential risks, these, these things that are irrevocable losses, where if, like extinction, where once it happens, you can't go back, they're the things that only our time can solve. And this puts us in this incredibly important leveraged position. And I think it's ultimately that this precipice I talk about is, I think, the meaning of our time. And so far from despondency, I think that it ultimately gives our time and our actions uh, immense meaning. And that's really what motivates me to, to get up in the morning. Mm, nice, nice. Yeah, I, I would add that you know, far from being depressing, this is fairly thrilling intellectually because you especially, I mean, you have, you have a few partners in crime here, but what you're able to do is marry otherwise merely academic philosophical concerns, you know, concerns about metaethics and normative ethics and practical ethics with real-world questions, the biggest real-world questions of suffering and happiness and the kinds of policies that we can make or fail to make that will affect our lives and, and the lives of people to come. So it's this wonderful marriage of interesting moral problems and the most important questions of human life. And, and for the longest time, philosophy has been sidelined, at least you know, serious philosophy has been sidelined and sidelined itself mm-hmm. at some point in the middle of the 20th century from even tackling questions of this kind. And, and you and a few other people are largely responsible for bringing it back into the conversation explicitly, where you can imagine people going into philosophy so as to work on questions of, of real relevance to humanity. As, and that's, uh, I mean, that would, would have been a non sequitur not many years ago. And now it's actually something that that is uh, not only plausible, uh, you know, I would say it's a very likely intellectual path for people. Yeah, it's still uh, unfashionable within philosophy. <laughs> We're hoping to make it uh, more fashionable uh, to, to try to, yeah, explore this area and this way of doing things and, you know, to wave a flag and say, you know, it's, you know, come in, the, the water's nice. And, we, you know, we can actually make intellectual progress on these fascinating and really big questions facing humanity. Let, let's do it. Keep going, Toby. Thanks for all that you do. Thank you.